Hello and, and welcome to another episode of Trinity College Dublin Talks. I'm Tom Malloy and with me today is Professor Lorraine Leeson, who's worked in Trinity for almost 25 years as a lecturer, as a sign language interpreter, and more recently as the director of the Centre for Deaf Studies. A year ago, I think it was, Lorraine, you were appointed the Associate Vice Provost for Equality, Diversity and Inclusion. That's a relatively new role. You're only the second person to hold this role. And it was a role that all Irish universities were, were sort of mandated to create. Um, I wonder, can we, can we, first of all, Lorraine, just kind of unpick what, what equality, diversity and inclusion really are? How would you differentiate between the three? Well, hello, Tom. First of all, I have to say that I haven't even been in, in this role for a year, though it may appear so. I've only been in role since the beginning of September, so I'm certainly just finding my feet and um, fortunate to be working with a brilliant team of people from across the college as I do this. Um, so in terms of what would the differences be between equality, diversity and inclusion, I suppose equality is about equal opportunities and seeking to ensure that people aren't discriminated against. Diversity, it's about, for me, respecting and valuing differences that exist in our society and saying that that's something to celebrate. And then inclusion would refer to how we experience our communities that we're engaging in, you know, be that a workplace, a college or wider society. And I would really emphasize, however, that I think we have to go beyond inclusion. We have to go to a place where, you know, it, it's not enough to say, come on in the door. You have to be able to say, sure, take your shoes off there, put your feet up and make yourself at home. You've got to feel like you belong somewhere. So how do we foster a place where people belong, regardless of what walk of life they come from? And how do we ensure that conditions are such that people can flourish? regardless of where they come from or who they are. I suppose uh, some people will wonder, why, why do universities in particular need, need somebody in a senior position to, to kind of safeguard those three very important values? Is it because uh, we haven't been good at it in the past or um, is it because we are good at it and it needs, it needs to be kind of reflected upon for wider society or how do you you know because it is it's no secret that that all Irish universities were, were ordered to create this 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 role following problems in, in universities really around uh, the promotion of women uh, what what do you think are the particular issues that affect Trinity I suppose I think that's a really interesting question I, I think you know, as you say, yes, they're, they're, they're always carrots and sticks. I think that there have been lots of people in Trinity for hundreds of years who have been seeking to push forward the way we do things. I mean, you just have to look back not over 100 years to see how the push to have women as students in the college unfolded and how things have transitioned in the intervening years. But I suppose we we do have legal obligations. We have obligations under the Equal Status Act. We have a public sector duty to ensure that there are non-discrimination policies and practices in place. And you might say, well, you know, if you were to take a laissez-faire approach, you would say, well, that's grand, isn't it? But it isn't. We know that, what you know, in any discipline, what you measure 
you can monitor and you can make sure that things are put duly in place to to support change or to we we have loads of blind spots. Everybody has blind spots. And I think, you know, very often we might be motoring along in our everyday and thinking, sure, things are grand because from where we stand or where we sit, things are fine or seem to be fine. But that doesn't mean that things are fine for our neighbour. Um, and as the university has diversified, as society has diversified, as we've seen, for example, over the past 20 years, more more students and staff with disabilities coming through our midst, as we have seen um, greater moves towards internationalization, you know, with Erasmus programs and Fulbright programs, and because of migration and deliberate efforts to bring in students from abroad. Well, then we also have a duty to say, well, are we making sure then that our custom and practice in the everyday is keeping up with the the ideals that we say we believe in and and that's also where we come in you know how do we how do we make sure that we make the college a place that is welcoming for everybody and equally on the other side of it how do we make sure that we are responding to the obligations that we have from the higher education authority from you know the irish human rights and equality commission and from other players. So you mentioned gender equality. That's certainly one area um, that we have been paying attention to for the past eight, 10 years. But certainly the, the road of travel, the direction of travel would seem likely to be a broader one where we're now paying more attention and rightly so to consideration of race and ethnicity, to consideration of age, to consideration of disability and making sure that we we don't have systemic ableism or systemic racism in our institutions. So we can do that in big ways through having policies, but then we also need to make sure that that filters down to the everyday, you know, so that um, if you if you want to have access to a prayer room, that you can do that, or that if you are a student mother, that you have access to breastfeeding facilities and so on and so forth. So there's a very broad range of things that we need to think about. And to me, these are part of what it means to be a good university, you know, in that sense of um, who is the university for? What is a university for? And if we see Trinity as a community, we've always talked about the college community. Well, then what does it mean to have a good community where everybody feels that they're part of that community and can flourish in that community? Yeah, the word community is a very interesting word, isn't it? Because it is a word that's bandied around a lot in, in Trinity and, and, and a sincerely held kind of concept. Uh, I use it a lot. Uh, my colleagues use it a lot. You used it there. A community is in a way, it's kind of a double edged sword, isn't it? Because on, on, the, on the one hand, a community can be inclusive and welcoming of diversity, but it can also be kind of exclusive in a way. Is, is that the tension that you're talking about here? Perhaps, yeah, I think I think that's a great question. You know, I think we have to think through who who is who is part of the community, you know, and and who who says so anyway? You know, you know, are you part of the community by virtue of the fact that you walk in through front gate? Are you part of the community by virtue of the fact that you have signed up to take a course with us? To me, you know, a community is the 
the, the range of people who are engaging in this both physical and virtual space um, on a daily basis. And for me, it's also about saying, you know, we, we often when we think about the college, we think about students, we think about the staff. But we should also remember that there are children on our campus in the college crash. There are children who go to the Walton Club. There are uh, older people who come through our extramural classes. You know, I remember a piece a few years back about these two gentlemen in their late 80s and maybe even into their 90s who were taking these evening classes. And so we have we have this very broad spectrum of of people who are on our campus in the everyday. And I, I think, you know, that we, we need to think about what does the college mean to them and and how then, you know, do we reflect back through the institutional responses, uh, a sense that this is an engaged, participatory environment that we're operating in. Yeah, I, I think too many people think of universities as, as being essentially places where 18 year olds go to mature and then leave at 22, don't they? And it, it's easy if you just have a kind of superficial interest in, in universities or just read the media here and there to think that uh, uh, universities do little more than that, perhaps a bit of research on top, whereas really they, they are, as you say, they're, they're, they're communicating with children, they're communicating with the elderly, they're communicating with, with all kinds of people, and people from all over the world as well, who, who come to visit, who come to study, who come to teach and research, and uh, it's a much more uh, complex ecosystem than, than most people give universities. And, and I think when you think about the fact that we have such a strong alumni network, mm. you know, that people people hold the college in their hearts. They may come to the door as a visitor for, you know, we, we have these wonderful um, Trinity Long Room Hub fellowships, for example, where people might come for a three week visit and work with academics. And yet they go away and they have these lingering um relationships with the college you know um you have students who come here as erasmus students and then they go home and they go on but they still have this ongoing relationship with the college and so i think we need to think about you know our community really in sense of a diaspora uh, as well as the physically present members who are here on on a day-to-day -day basis for for maybe you know for some for a short period of time some for a longer period of time and we need to think about that footprint in the world and and you know what kind of a footprint do we have and we want people to go away really feeling that the the college is is a place where they felt welcomed where they felt supported and where they felt that they could flourish so to me it's about saying what is what does success look like? And I don't mean academic success only because, of course, we're interested in, in excellence and in succeeding and being the best that we can be. But we have to make sure that we we think about success in that broader sense of of engagement and the, the development of the individual as a success story and the, you know, the opportunity for individuals to flourish during their time in the college, but also that that spills over into other parts of their lives. I know it all sounds very optimistic on my part, but that's that's something that I really believe. I want people to have a good experience when they're here in the college and that that's something that persists. Well, you have to be optimistic, don't you, Lorraine, because 
your 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 task is fairly daunting in many ways. I mean, if if one takes uh, the campus of Trinity College Dublin, in some ways it, it, it's a very well located campus for people with uh, physical disabilities because it is a, at the uh, it's a it's a kind of a transport public transport hub, and uh, you can get here by train or by 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 bus or by almost any way you any way you choose, unlike many other universities. But on the Dan side, I suppose the buildings are old and they didn't have lifts in the 18th century. And it can be a kind of a daunting prospect sometimes just to to get around the buildings. How can we best cope with with those kind of problems, do you think? Do you think it's best to say, well, certain universities can provide certain services and, and we can provide others? Or should we should we change our buildings or what, what do you think we should do there? Well, I think that we can we can start by looking at how accessible our buildings are. And, you know, we have an obligation to increase the number of staff with disabilities working for our university. All universities, all public sector uh, bodies do to six percent. So we should be asking students and staff with disabilities to tell us how accessible or inaccessible spaces are. I mean, can you imagine if you were navigating campus as a blind person, how would you do that? Can we change that and improve that for the better? What if you're navigating a space as a deaf person? What are the considerations that we need to factor in there? I mean, we, we tend to, and rightly so, think about physical access. Um, but we need to go beyond that. So we, we do need to be thinking about uh, an intersectional approach to accessibility. We need to, you know, we think about um, lighting. We think about um, what that means in terms of feelings of safety. But we also need to think about signposting, um, about, you know, if, if you are a deaf person, because I, I come from deaf studies, I've worked with deaf mm. people for most of my career. What happens if there's a fire alarm in a building that doesn't have a visual fire alarm system in place? Or what happens if you get locked into a room and you need support from security? You can't pick up the telephone. So how well signposted are the text numbers for security as well as, say, the phone numbers? So there are those kind of small changes. I think the Japanese call it the art of Kaizen. You know, they say many little changes bring about significant change. And, and that's, I think, to some degree what we can do. We can say, look, there are loads of little things that we can do that collectively will have a very significant impact for many members of our community. And then there are other things that we can do, like we can say, well, because we have this amazing old campus, a lot of what we've been doing for the past couple of decades is retrofitting and trying to bring things up to spec for accessibility in the 21st century. But we've also been building forward. So um, um, we will continue, I'm sure, to build forward. So as we're imagining where we're going over the next decade, we need to think about, well, you know, we know that we have, you know, a demographic of, of young women on campus. So we can imagine that many of them may become mothers while they're working with us or studying with us. So why don't we, when we're building a new building, make sure that we're putting in adequate space to support again you know things like breastfeeding or baby changing spaces 
if we know that we're going to have uh, a more diverse community, well, then we need to accept and ensure that we're providing adequate, maybe multi-faith spaces so that people can take a little bit time out of their day and they can pray or they can sit in contemplation if, if that's what they would like to do. But we build in those spaces from the beginning rather than, you know, afterwards going, oh, my God, we never thought of this. Where are we going to put this in now? And those retrofits tend to be more expensive and they tend to be probably less ideal than they would be if you were building them in from the beginning. So for me, my my mission is to say, let's make equality, diversity and inclusion thinking fundamental to everything we do. Put it put it as a starting point. It can't be a plug in after the fact. We need a new operating system here. So how do we do that and how do we how do we just check and cross check the decisions that we're making to ensure insofar as we can that there aren't unintended consequences of decisions that are going to more negatively impact certain parts of our community than others. Um, so, you know, I think sometimes it's just about taking a little moment and saying, OK, what does this decision mean from the perspective of X, Y and Z and joining up some of the dots a little bit. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm very reassured by the many great conversations I've had over the past two to three months with colleagues. Uh, there's a great deal of energy and enthusiasm for this conversation. So I think it's very timely, Tom. I think I think, uh, you know, you and I uh, sit on several committees together, Lorraine, and, and, and I know that uh, I, I certainly see the enthusiasm for what you're what you're talking about. And, and I certainly see the benefit of baking this into at the planning stage rather than, as you say, scratching your heads and wishing you'd done it after building is completed or, or whatever. Lorraine, how did you uh, what, what were the kind of steps in your life that, that have made you? so interested in this topic because obviously many people are interested and we, we 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 should all be interested and i think we'll be more interested as as time goes on but but you you have uh, you've been in this area for, for quite some time now you know take us back to and and before before you became a, a lecturer before you joined trinity you did many other jobs you worked in a cake shop as a swimming teacher and a lifeguard and so on and so forth. How did you become an academic? Chance, I think. Um, I grew up in Cabra, Tom, and uh, I was the eldest of six kids. My parents, like so many of their generation, left school after primary school because at that time there was no free secondary education and their families couldn't afford to support them through secondary school. And it would have been unheard of, really, at the time. Anyway, but um, my my mother in particular was absolutely determined that her kids would all do the leaving cert. And then she really didn't mind what it was that we wanted to do beyond that. But that was her goal. So <laughs> when we were doing secondary school, you know, we were coming close to, to leaving cert. I think our career guidance teacher must have been having a bad day because she basically said to us, you know, I don't know why you're all doing the leaving cert. You're all going to be married off or working in you know retail or um you know secretaries um i don't know why you're bothering doing this and and that kind of was where it was at in the in the late 1980s for working class kids i guess um so so for me it was like well what do i want to do well i'm the eldest of six 
And so I thought, well, maybe childcare would be, you know, something I could do because I certainly didn't want to be a secretary. Um, and I thought, well, OK, I'll, I'll do this course. So I, I did a post leaving certificate course, Tom. And uh, through that course, I happened to secure a placement out in the Central Remedial Clinic in Clontarf. And while I was there, they happened to offer an Irish sign language class and I happened to take it and I was terribly bad, terribly, terribly bad at it. Um, but from that, then I, I, I did some more studies and applied for a job as a house parent in St. Joseph's School for Deaf Boys in Cabra. And I walked in, at, I, I did my leaving certificate at eight, at 16, so uh, I was very young. And you were a so parent, I, really child almost. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and so at 18, I walked into St. Joseph's School for Deaf Boys thinking I was going to work with little deaf kids. And I was in a house as a house mother to 16 deaf teenage boys aged 15 to 20. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that was the start in many ways of my journey. But I, I suppose, you know, for me, I've been very interested in these issues. I suppose, you know, coming from a working class family, um, my dad was unemployed for a lot of the 1980s, you know, the Great Recession. So I understand what it's like to come from a socioeconomically disadvantaged space. I understand what it's like to have sort of gender expectations placed upon me. I've been asked more times than I can count over my career if I'm the secretary. I have no problem with being a secretary, but I certainly was never the, the person being asked if I was the director of the Centre for Deaf Studies. So, you know, there's there are those there are stereotypes, assumptions. I've worked with deaf people. I've worked with people with disabilities. Um, and, and that to me has enriched my life and, and helped me to to think broadly about what it means to be in Irish society and what does one have to do in order to be able to get in the door to a degree, but then mm. also to to feel at home and to flourish. And, you know, what are the conditions that help with that? Now, I've been extremely fortunate. I've met so many wonderful, welcoming people here in college and across my, my own career. I also studied at the University of Bristol. Um, and, and, you know, I had people who were very encouraging. And I think that that encouragement and that reassurance that you can do things that at people who signpost to you, you know, being a first generation student also brings its own challenges because you don't even know what the questions are that you should be asking, never mind knowing how to navigate um, some of the, the things that you would navigate on a daily basis if if you had a different um, world view or a different realm of knowledge available to you. So I suppose that it's those multiplicities of experiences that have certainly informed my approach and uh, they they make me very passionate about this role and I'm I'm really really grateful that I have the opportunity to step into this space and work with such a wonderful team of, of people here in the college to to see how we can build on the great work that has been done and build forward even more stronger. That's very interesting. So it was really totally random, really, wasn't it? I mean, a lot of people who, who, who come into this space have experienced something in their own lives or their families' lives. Or, you know, when I asked you the question, I thought maybe uh, you would have a deaf relative or something like that. But it, it was just that that chance of, of going to to the remediate to that particular centre in Clontarf at that particular time. 
Well, well, yes and no. I also grew up in Cabra, which is where the main schools for the deaf in Ireland have been mm. located since the mid since the mid 1840s. I hasten to add that I have not been there since the mid 1840s. Um, but so there were deaf people in the neighbourhood. Our local shoe mender was a deaf man. You know, right. I, yeah. I remember yeah. meeting him as a three year old. So, yeah, deaf people were around. It was it was just normal. And there were members of my own extended family who had disabilities. And that's absolutely normal. It's just this is the fabric of our society. And, you know, if we give people space to be the best that they can be, well, then we can do amazing things in the world. So we as a university, I think, should be giving people space to be the very best that they can be. Well, we should really end on that optimistic note, but uh, that we can do wonderful things in the world and that universities are our vehicles for that. But I do have one last question, if you don't mind. Uh, in a couple of weeks, it's Irish Sign Language Day. And and I know that you know, you're know you an expert in Irish Sign Language. One thing I've never understood and I'm intensely curious about is why do we have an Irish Sign Language and an English-speaking sign language? Why, why is there a difference? It's always seemed to me that it would have been a great opportunity to teach everybody in the world the same sign language. Um, but we don't seem to do that. Why, why is there an Irish sign language and a, you know, a sign language, different one in the US, say, and, and the UK and so on? Well, that, that's a, a great question. It's because languages evolve naturally over time. So sign languages aren't created by somebody with the deliberate intent of teaching deaf people. For as long as there have been deaf people, there have been sign languages. And just like spoken languages change over time, and come in contact with other languages and borrow from them, so too does Irish Sign Language. So, so contemporary Irish Sign Language has historical roots in French Sign Language, um, but also has a lot of contact with the sign language used in the UK, which is called British Sign Language. I should really emphasise that it's, it's in some ways, you know, when we say Irish Sign Language, people automatically think then, oh, it must be something to do with Gaelga, but it, it isn't. So, Irish Sign Language is just simply the sign language that is used in Ireland. It's officially recognised by the state. We have an Irish Sign Language Act. And we we can also say that it is as different from English or Irish as French is from English or Irish. It has its own syntax, its own grammar, its own structure. And uh, it is a living, wonderful thing. It's a beautiful language. And so, too, are the other sign languages that uh, we experience in the world. So it's like a, a whole other hidden layer of the language ecology. It was kind of a kind of a, a stupid and arrogant question on my part. I assumed, I suppose, because most of the people on the island of Ireland and the island of Britain can understand one another, that that should be the case with sign language. Of course, there's no reason why why it should be. In, in a nutshell, isn't it? It's, 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 it's a different sure. language that's evolved differently. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah they're, they're different languages, but um, many Irish deaf people understand British Sign Language because in the UK they're really good at putting sign languages on TV. So you <laughs> see a lot of British Sign Language in the media um, because there are Ofcom standards around that. And of course, if you look at the COVID briefings over the past two years, if you look at the Northern Irish uh, briefings, you'll see that there are two sign language interpreters on screen, yep. both one for Irish sign language and one for British sign language. So you can you can check them out and see if you can identify similarities and differences in the patterns that you see on the news each night. Sign language, Irish sign language was kind of 
recognized by by an Oireachtas Act, wasn't it? I think about six or seven years ago, one of the few private members' bills to, to actually get through the Parliament. If you could create one piece of legislation to, to kind of combat an issue in the equality, diversity, inclusion space, would you share with us what, what piece of legislation you would enact? Oh, that is such a good question. And this is really taking me now on the spot. Um, gosh, you know what? I, I think it would probably be around just public spaces. And the, the, I would say, you know, universal design, probably. Right. Now, you're putting me on the spot, but I would yeah, say no, no, but it seems like something a fairly to do with universal thing. design yeah. and as an accessibility. Yeah. It would probably be uh, welcomed by, by many other people people wouldn't it you know i mean it's it's uh, it's it's useful for people pushing buggies or in, in but, but that's it exactly and you would be thinking about things like public you know public lighting you would be thinking about things like um just just safety you know on our streets for everybody mm. uh and i think you know if we have a, a, a space if we have a, a civic society where everybody feels safe in the community you know, in say public transport or or going about their their daily business without fear. Well, then that's a better society for everybody. And, and, and this, I think, this is what I'm taking from what you're saying. Really, you're emphasising it's a win-win for everybody, isn't it? Whether you personally benefit in the immediate term from from uh, EDI changes, you, you benefit in a in a in a wider sense for sure. I should have actually asked you about one last thing, and, and, and if you don't mind, I will. It's, it's about the Speak Out campaign that uh, that you sure. and others in Trinity are, are, are bringing forward in the next uh, few days. Would you like to just tell us what it is? Sure. Well, the, the Speak Out tool is it's an online anonymous reporting tool. Um, the Higher Education Authority has asked each and every higher education institute in the land to ensure that they have a consent framework in order to tackle issues around sexual violence, but also hate crime, harassment and bullying. So the Speak Out tool is an anonymous tool um, where students, staff, visitors to a, an individual college or university can just log in and they can report their experience. It's really important to say that it is totally anonymous, but what it does give us is a sense of the, 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 the level of experience of negative behaviours in the community at large. And from that, then we can build forward. We can build better policies. And we are indeed, we're working with the college to build a, a new sexual misconduct policy. And we are reinvigorating the dignity and respect policy, but also means that we can engage in rolling out more robust educational responses too. you know, so we see consent training that's become the norm and rolled out by you know, the students union with the senior tutors area, with the counselling service. And we can maybe build forward on that even more just to make sure that the bottom line is that, you know, in, in a community, in, in the college community, we have a zero tolerance for any kind of harassment, bullying, sexual misconduct. And we need to say that very, very strongly. And I think it's quite timely and appropriate that we launch the Speak Out tool on International Consent Day. Uh, as part of the 16 days of action against violence. 
is harassment, is bullying, do you, do you think it's a significant problem or or a, a, a limited problem with obviously terrible consequences for those involved? I mean, do you think it's widespread? Or I guess is my question. Mm-hmm. I, I think our colleagues in HR are probably best placed to answer that question. <laughs> Um, but I would get the sense I, I would. Get, so there's there's several things to say. I think I think one important thing to say is that in places where people feel that they can safely reveal negative experiences, the level of reporting tends to be higher. So we shouldn't be afraid if people start to feel that they can tell us that they've had negative experiences. It doesn't mean that there's you know, a, a new epidemic of bullying that has come on stream. Rather, it means that there is a space where people feel safe to do that. And we know this because, for example, uh, somebody recently said to me, you know, Sweden has the largest annual reports of rape in Europe. It's not that Sweden is a less safe country. It's that more people feel that it's safe to report their experiences of rape to the system there than perhaps in other countries. So to me, you know, the issue of bullying, harassment, you know, it, it's it's something we have to take seriously and we really have to demonstrate by our actions that we're willing to do something to stop this. The first step on that journey is to hearing what people have to say and to believing people when they tell us what their experience is. And then, as I said, you know, from that you build forward, you need to make sure then that you respond and act in appropriate ways. And on on that front, that's where we work very collaboratively across the college to make sure that our responses are appropriate, are in line with natural justice, of course, um, and and that we we do respond. I think that's really, really important that we you you can't ignore the, the terrible damage that people experience when they are living quietly through very negative experiences. Be that, as we said, you know, bullying, be that harassment, be it as a result of some kind of sexual misconduct or assault. We, we just have to say that is not acceptable. And we need to say that regularly and often. And then we need to match our words to our actions, through our policies, through our education system, through what we say to people on the day to day. And then how do we respond to people when they do come forward and tell us what they have experienced? Well, uh, that, that, that's a good place to to, to end this uh, end this particularly particular episode. It's quite clear, Lorraine Leeson, that you have a, a pile of work ahead of you. You're still quantifying the problem in many areas, such as this one, and 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 dealing with the and implementing the solutions in in other areas. Uh, thank you very much for for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk with you, Tom. It's been a pleasure. Thank <laughs> you.